In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. This is God's word. All right, thank you, Kendra. Um, I'll do a real quick preface of the series that we're starting, which is we have gone through a number of uh, very community-based series up until this point, and today we are beginning uh, our Advent series. If you're not familiar, Advent is a very traditional uh, Christian season that starts right around now, and it goes until Christmas, which is when the church celebrates the birth of Jesus. So we're doing our own Advent series, and we're calling it Christmas on the Outpost. Today's going to be our first sermon on that. Uh, but before that, we're going to have Jared come on up and lead us in the Lord's Prayer. So thank you, Jared. And uh, pass the mic off to him. Join with me in praying. Dear blessed Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Lord, as we enter into this season of Advent, uh, I ask that you would keep us focused on you, focused on your name, um, your glory, your greatness, um, how you came um, to earth um, to be be a small baby um, and live your entire life so that we might have peace. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You coming to earth um, was to bring about a a new kingdom. And we just pray that um, as we go about um, our daily lives, that we would focus that focus on that our task, our goal is to build a kingdom, to join in with you, um, to move about in this world as your spirit leads, um, that all might know that you are glorious, that you are great, and that you um, are to be praised. Give us this day our daily bread. Um, We are in desperate need of you at all times. But we ask that um, this holiday season we would not um, focus on our needs, knowing that you provide for us as you do um, the flowers and the birds, Um, but we would recognize the needs of those around us. Um, Lord, would we be sensitive to that? Um, And would we seek um, to bring your kingdom to our neighbors, um, our friends, our family, those who are in need? Help us, Lord. Uh, Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. Um, Lord, you came so that you could reconcile us back to yourself. Um, And in doing so, um, you had um, to atone for our sin. Um, It is your sin, or it is our sin that um, led you to earth, and it is our sin that led um, you to the cross. And I pray that we would not only um, humbly recognize that this is the case, but would we rejoice and praise you um, and just be lights in this world knowing that we have a Savior um, who came and reconciled us. Uh, And lead us not into temptation, um, but deliver us from evil. Um, 
there are many troubles and many um, snares in our way. Um, and it is easy to become distracted, Lord. It is easy to um, forget why we have life and breath. Um, but I pray that you would just help us to um, avoid these things. Um, and would we maintain focus on you, on um, what truly is the reason for this season, um, that, that a, a Savior came, came and his name is Christ. Um, if we focus in on this, Lord Jesus, um, we surely will overcome. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, Jared. Okay. So I mentioned earlier how we are today starting a brand new series um, called uh, Christmas on the Outpost. And if you're not familiar, uh, the Outpost is kind of this idea that we've been exploring over this past year. And the Outpost is a model of ministry that we're kind of adopting here at Mission. And what that really means is that we are uh, presenting Jesus to those who would consider themselves either spiritually unfamiliar or uh, maybe like uh, just not super connected with Christianity or those who are spiritually jaded or maybe even spiritually burnt out or had experienced some negative things. So we're kind of asking ourselves the question, uh, what does the story of Christmas mean to the spiritually outside or the spiritually peering in from the outside? I struggled with writing a title for this sermon. Uh, my working title that I had, which I might still run with, was For All the Losers and Nobodies. Um, it's anyone's guess to see if Jared actually puts that on the website. I'm hoping he does, but, you know, I understand why he might not. The story of Jesus' birth makes a tremendous statement about the heart that God was showing to the world that he was entering into. And there's a lot more than a lot of us tends to see, and I think a lot of it requires a little bit of knowledge in just what the world looked like that Jesus was entering into. And so we're gonna do a little bit of exploring today. So bear with me. Um, so here's, here's the first point that I want to make. And, and if so, for some of you guys who enjoy some of my longer history ramblings, you're going to really have a great time today. For those of you who don't, I don't know, maybe get comfortable. Maybe pull out that, pull that pillow out of your back pocket. This might be, this might be game over for you. Um, so here's my first point. Jesus was born in Nazareth. Nazareth, geez. Nazareth was a loser town in loser Galilee. I'm really playing with the slang today. We're going to see how it, how it goes. Nazareth was a loser town in loser Galilee. All right, Ray, if you could put up that first map for me. Um, so I hope you guys can see this. If you can't, this uh, past week of study was very, very interesting for me in terms of understanding some of the geopolitical context of what was happening. So uh, Mike, is my mic going to mess up if I get closer to the wall here? Sweet. All right, because I've seen 
seen stuff happen. All right, so I should have brought one of those sticks for you guys. Um, but so we have down here in the, in the very south, this like nice orange region. You know, I should have brought the screen down, you know. Jared, you can cut this from the audio recording, dude. Thanks, man. All right. Well, I know, it just really comes to life. Oh my gosh. This is, come on, bro. There we go. I got it. I got it. All right. So, thank you. Thank you. Please. All right. Jared's going to have to edit all this stuff out. All right. So, we have Judea, which is, if you can see it, there should be a lot of really familiar words for you. You have Hebron here. You have Dead Sea, where everyone likes taking the pictures with the mud and stuff. You've got Jerusalem, big place. What's up, Mike? What's that? Oh, let's go. Dude, I got so much happening here. How do I... This? Yeah. Okay. Oh my gosh. All right. I'm back over here now. Woo! Bringing this sermon into 2022. Am I right? All right. So you should be familiar with some of these areas. Dead Sea, as I said, that's the place with all the mud. People love taking pictures. It's like salt water. It's crazy. Uh, you've got Jerusalem here, which, you know, really important. Jericho, where the walls fell down. Everybody knows about Judea. And then Samaria is weird because that's where after the Assyrians took over, there was all of what the Israel, Israelites called inbreeding, where there were a lot of non-Jews who were having children with Jews. So a lot of, uh, of half-breeds over here in Samaria, which, hey, I can empathize. Um, but nobody likes, the, okay, uh, nobody likes the Samaritans because they're not pure Jewish. And, you know, that they really liked ethnic purity back then. Um, now you have Galilee. Galilee is a little bit weird. You guys are crazy today. Um, Galilee's a little bit weirder because Galilee has a lot of territory between it and Judea. And Galilee is kind of like the forgotten part. Now, here's the interesting thing about some of the stuff that we're going to talk about here is that um, Galilee was full of fertile land. It was great for farmers. It was great for fishermen because you've got the Sea of Galilee right here. Uh, Judea, once again, this is the Dead Sea. So not a lot of fishing going on here. And if you know anything about this region, it's super mountainy. It's lots of hills. It's not fertile land. So up here, you've got successful farmers and fishermen. Down here, they're just dealing with the mountains. So Judea kind of has a bone to pick with Galilee because they have much worse terrain, and they kind of feel like Galilee feels like they're a little bit better than other people because it's so easy for them to grow crops and food out there. Another thing is that uh, because the Judeans have Jerusalem, they have one key component, which is very central to the Jewish faith. Would anyone like to guess what that is? The temple, the literal dwelling place of God in the Jewish faith is right here in Jerusalem. So if you're a Judean, you're thinking, if you're a Jew worth your salt, and you're someone who takes your religion seriously, you either live in Jerusalem or you live as close to Jerusalem as possible. Maybe, actually no, Qumran's where all the Essenes live. But maybe Jericho, maybe Bethany, but you want to be as close to the temple as possible because the temple is where the sacrifices are performed. The temple is where the priests are still kind of like advocating for the people. So to live all the way up here 
is essentially saying, I don't really care that much about my faith. I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm enjoying all this nice soil up here. So um, another thing was Galileans spoke a very distinct form of Aramaic, which is like old school Hebrew. And there were like a couple of letters that they just didn't pronounce altogether. So if you're from Galilee, it's like you've got a very distinct, very sharp accent that if you're from Judea, once again, you're just not going to respect that much. And that reminded me of a, of a really interesting story. I'll tell it really briefly. I had a good friend when I was living in Israel uh, whose name was Josue, and he was was from Honduras. And there's something interesting I learned about um, a lot of Latin Americans who especially live in South America, which is that they have uh, typically some interesting stereotypes about other Latin American countries. Um, there's a few in particular that I always remembered, but the one that always stood out was that if you're from Central America, Latin America, or even Mexico, you most likely have your biggest beef with Spain, because Spanish people, according to the stereotype, no disrespect to any of the Spanish people in the audience, Spanish people have a tendency to look down on how, La yeah, see, Grace and Ed are nodding, see? Uh, Latin America, or I'm sorry, Spanish people have a tendency to look down on Latin Americans and the way they speak their language. So my buddy Josue tells me this story about how when he flies into Spain as a connecting trip, he has to stop through customs, and the poor Spanish woman who's trying to ask him questions, he pretends he doesn't speak Spanish and tries to force this poor gal to speak English because in his mind, he's like, no, I am not gonna speak, I'm not gonna subject myself to the criticism of this Spanish worker. I would rather make them speak English. And when, of course, she found out that he was native and to Honduras, she got very upset and became a whole big thing. But this idea of like ethnic rivalry, I think is very, very interesting to me. And it's something that we a thousand percent see in this era that Jesus is being born to. Galileans were not liked by Judeans. Judeans saw themselves as being close to the priesthood, as being close to the temple, and as taking their faith seriously. They did not see Galileans as that kind of person. And Jesus was born in Galilee. And that is an interesting thing worth considering. Now, let's get, let's, let's narrow the, uh, the magnifying glass a little bit. Let's talk about Nazareth. You guys can see it right here. So if you were um, a first or second century Jew in this time period, if I were to say the town Nazareth, your response would most likely be, huh? because Nazareth had zero significance on a historical level up until this time. Nazareth is nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. It has zero significance there. It is not mentioned a single time. It's not included in any ancient rabbinical or Jewish texts until the third century. That's 300 years after Jesus was already born. It was also just small because, thanks, Ray. It was also just small because it was closer to a lot bigger, a lot more significant towns. And Nazareth probably only had about 500 people that lived there. Just a couple, just a, a, probably a large handful of families and their extended families lived in Nazareth. Another interesting thing was that 
uh, around the time that Jesus was born, Nazareth and some towns nearby had gotten involved in a couple of revolts where they were trying to, you know, storm the Romans' treasury and things like that. And so, ironically enough, Nazareth became kind of known for large mass crucifixions because the Romans, in order to put down these revolts, would send their armies and shut them down, and then they would find dozens of Jews in the area and crucify them as a display for any future um, rebels. And so Nazareth wasn't just nowheresville. It was also part of a part of that country that was pretty looked down on. It had a very, very poor reputation in that area. And so to say that you're from Nazareth would be a way of saying, you know, I'm from a pretty unliked area. I, I, most people don't think that I take my Judaism very seriously. I have this accent, which I just imagine sounds like if someone with a New Jersey accent was speaking Hebrew. Um, and there's just, uh, there's not a lot to like about Nazareth. And there's even less to like about the region that it's contained in. And so all of that, all of that history to say this, if the Messiah were to come during this time period, he would not be from Nazareth. He would not be from Galilee. He would be from Jerusalem because that's where the temple is and that's where the priests and the prophets and everyone significant to Judaism was. Jesus being born in Nazareth was remarkably confusing to a lot of people. And we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But in the providence of God, we saw his decision to plant his self amongst the nobodies and the outsiders of Nazareth and Galilee. Crazy stuff. Here's my second point. Joseph and Mary were a couple of nobodies. Joseph and Mary were a couple of nobodies. Now, before I offend anyone's potentially Catholic sensitivities, I will contextualize this. I do think Joseph and Mary were great, but here's the thing. And there were also plenty of more colorful portrait style versions of Joseph and Mary. And I'll, I'll get to why I didn't use those. And I went with the, uh, you know, the faceless porcelain dolls there. But Joseph and Mary. So Joseph, as, we, as many of us probably know, was a carpenter, just like Jesus was. Uh, Joseph, no one's really sure how old he was. The younger estimates say he could have been in his late teens. Older say he could have been in his late 40s to early 50s. Interestingly, Mary is not that far across the board when it comes to estimates. They believe that she was almost definitely between the ages of get this, 11 and 14. Mary was very young. And this was not even, uh, e even close to rare when it came to cultural customs. This was very, very prominent. And, you know, this was what any family of Jews would hope for, which is that their teenage daughter would be married off to an older man who could take care of her. This was, this was not scandalous. This was fairly commonplace. We believe that the couple was poor. 
because there's actually a pretty interesting little thing you can assess where after Jesus is born, Mary and Joseph are traveling to the temple because it was custom that after you have a baby with your, when you're a woman, about, I think it was 33 days after the birth, you want to give a sacrifice at the temple as a way of becoming pure again. And uh, if you look in Leviticus where it explains that, it says you can sacrifice a lamb, but if, you're, if you can't afford it, you can sacrifice two doves instead. And so when it talks about this happening, Mary and Joseph go and they sacrifice two doves, which leads us to imply that they probably couldn't afford a lamb. So we can guess they were most likely fairly impoverished. Also just assessing that they were from a very small town and a not very respected um, community. So here's me being blunt for a second. Mary and Joseph was a story that had been told and forgotten millions of times over in human history. They were a husband and wife in a relatively impoverished area that practiced the religion of their ancestors. Any logic or reason we apply to the story of Mary and Joseph would say that they would live and they would die and they would be forgotten and they would have zero significance and we definitely wouldn't be talking about them today. And yet, interestingly enough, God decided that this was where something pretty important was going to begin. In the town of Nowheresville, Galilee, born to two relative nobodies. And I'll say, the reason I didn't use portraits here was one, and I know this point's been beat to death a million times, they were, uh, they were very uh, melanin-challenged, unfortunately. But also, one thing I noticed was that Mary's always portrayed as if she's like in her late 20s with the baby. Maybe it's because when these European dudes were doing these portraits, they were trying to make it more sensible, but legit, girl was at the oldest, 14, and, uh, and that's very rarely reflected. So that's why I went with the, uh, the dolls. So if we look into the story that Kendra read for us today, we've covered Nazareth. We've covered Joseph and Mary. Let's talk about Gabriel really quick. Gabriel was the name of the angel that appeared to Mary. Now, for the Jews of this time that were familiar with, the, with their texts and with their scriptures, Gabriel was a familiar, he, he, was a, he was known as an archangel, which was kind of a term that wasn't given until later. But he was a, he was a familiar angel. Interestingly, Gabriel's big presence in the Old Testament was when Daniel is receiving all of these crazy apocalyptic visions of the, the end of the world, or at least the end of a historical era. And Gabriel appears before him to help him understand what's happening. It's interesting is that when Gabriel appeared to Daniel, Daniel was terrified. He fell on his face. But this time was different. This time, instead of meeting a, a frantic prophet in captive Babylon, Gabriel, an angel of God, perfect and pure in light, presents himself in the living space of this young girl. And he calls her favored one. 
And he doesn't bring a message of destruction and judgment. He brings a message of great hope and life. And what also just stood out to me was Mary didn't seem to be afraid to see him. I think it's worth noting that in this time in Jewish history, uh, women were very restricted from religious practices. They weren't allowed to participate in synagogue worship. They weren't allowed to enter into most of the sections of the temple. They couldn't even touch the scriptures. So it's, it's fascinating to me that Mary, this young little girl who responds to an angel presenting this message of bringing the son of God into the world through her, she responds in faith and obedience. And then a woman gets to experience the presence of God in a way that no human being has or had before and ever would after that. This young woman from Nowheresville would carry the living God inside her own body and nurse him. So Mary, so according to the story, just continuing it out, uh, Mary, continue, Mary responded to, in faith to the words of the angel. She obeyed in receiving and taking care of little Jesus. Joseph was reasonably concerned when he found out about Mary's pregnancy because he assumed that it was likely because Mary was unfaithful. Joseph would later also have a vision of an angel that would clarify that, no, that actually wasn't the case but that this was a divine appointment. The couple would raise baby Jesus together. They would routinely travel to Jerusalem to visit the temple as any good practicing Jew would at that time. Joseph would teach his son how to be a carpenter. And he would most likely die before Jesus ever started his ministry. And Mary would travel around with her son when his ministry started and she would witness her son's death and also his resurrection. Mary and Joseph were two nobodies. And through them, we know Jesus today. Two poor, blue-collar, salt-of-the-earth Nazarenes responded with faith and obedience to God and they are worthy of tremendous honor. So all of that background information to say this, the Son of God did not come to us in power nor in privilege, but in humility. It's incredible to think of it like this, that the love of God would come in such common and unsightly places, that Jesus was raised by a poor family by a couple that many people would consider second-rate Jews, that he was uh, taught to work with his hands by his dad and loved and nurtured by his mom, learned an honest blue-collar trade, living in Nowheresville, all to make a message about God's heart towards the poor and the less-thans and the have-nots. 
I think this is why it makes perfect sense that following Jesus' ministry, the gospel would grow from an offshoot of Judaism into a faith that is calling the entire world. It makes perfect sense that when Jesus starts off his ministry by catapulting himself into the middle of nowhere, that of course he would call the nations outside of Israel. Of course he would call everyone to himself. Of course he would make room at the table for all. This is Jesus's grand announcement that everything that had ever been deemed unclean and everyone who had been deemed unclean was now invited to the table of God. And there was room. This is not even a cherry-picked idea. Like, I didn't just put a couple of these ideas together based on two lines of text that we read earlier. This is a visible concept throughout the entire Bible. Like, we can look at how God is constantly commanding his people to advocate for the poor, to look out for the widows, to watch over the orphans, to care for the foreigners, Look at how strongly Paul rebukes in his letters to those who would mistreat the Gentiles. God is speaking for everyone, but especially those who are vulnerable to mistreatment and abuse. Even God's violent enemies end up having a place at his table. My favorite example of that is Jonah. We always think about Jonah as the goofy book where the dude got swallowed by a, a whale and somehow a whale was living in a sea. But honestly, what, what's remarkable to me about Jonah is the reason the dude got swallowed by a whale is because he didn't want to do the message that God had given him. Why? Because God told him to preach to Israel's enemies to some dudes who had been killing and oppressing Israel for hundreds of years at that point. God was saying, I know they're your enemies. Trust me, bro, they're mine too. But I want you to go get them for me. I mean, an even better example is Paul. Paul was a literal and physical enemy of the church while he was persecuting Christians only to see Jesus face to face and have his life transformed. So the message I think we should walk away from is, whatever it is that is casting us down, whether it's shame over sin and the ways that we were enemies of God, or whether it's a complex of inferiority that's baked in our, our personalities or our identities or our nationalities or whatever that looks like, we should know that the table of God is open to the outsiders and to the losers and to all. Not just in Jesus' birth, but in his entire life and ministry, he dedicates his time and his energy and literally his blood to those who are considered less than and cast out. In, uh, in John's gospel, Jesus is going around, he's gathering the disciples and he tells uh, this man named Philip who he was. And he said, you know, I'm the son of God. And you know, it doesn't say what he, all that he said to Philip, but Philip gets psyched. He's like, this dude, this dude's definitely it. So Philip goes and he goes to tell his friend, Nathaniel. And he says, Nathaniel, I just found this dude. He's, uh, 
He's a, he's a guy from Nazareth, but he says he's the son of God. And I believe him. I, I don't know. There's some, I, I'm really compelled by this guy. And Nathaniel says probably the most ironic statement ever written down on paper, which is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's like that place? Philip's response, he doesn't argue with him. He doesn't scold him for making an ignorant statement. He says, why don't you just come and see, come and meet him. I love the interaction that they have because Jesus doesn't, like when, when, when Nathaniel sees Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, oh, you're the dude who's talking smack out my hometown, huh? Like, no, he actually says, I don't think I see any deceit in you, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's like, how, how do you know me? You don't know who I am. And Jesus said, I do. I remember I saw you when you were sitting under the tree earlier. And Nathaniel had to think to himself, nobody was around me when I was doing that. No one on earth saw me sitting under that tree. Only someone who would know me better than anyone else could have said this to me. And immediately Nathaniel's like, okay, you got me. You're the son of God. You're, I was wrong. Sorry about that. And so I think we should recognize that just as the love of God has opened the gates wide for all of us, and that now we are able to experience a new life with him, that this, not, this life is not just for the favorites, it's not just for the, the, the particulars, the ones that look like us. It's not just the ones that are, that are our team. It's our enemies too. It's the ones that we consider unsophisticated with that ugly sounding accent. Someone from the other neck of the woods that we don't respect quite as much. So just as Nathaniel was captivated, not by an argument from Philip, but by coming and seeing the grace of Jesus himself. Let our prayer for those Nathaniels that we know in our lives, whether literal or figurative, let our prayer for them be that they would come and see the love of Jesus as well as we have. So pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, I, uh, I thank you, God, for um, all that you are showing to us, Lord. Um, I thank you for just the, the kindness and for making a way for those who have felt completely outside. I think it's easy to feel that. Honestly, God, there's so many things that can make us feel cast out or isolated or unwanted or uncared for but I think it's so essential, Father. It's my prayer for myself, but it's also my prayer for so many people, God, that we would know just how at home we are with you. Like literally, you have made a home with us through your spirit, and for that we are grateful, but it's also so easy to lose sight of that. So may you preach to us and speak to and bless and minister to us especially who feel like outsiders and those who are cast out and give us a love that doesn't just sit idle and dormant with us, but a love that we can share so that others may know your love and your goodness as well. I pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.